The technology could pull the texture information off of a building's brick from five miles away. No. In the next five years alone, our minds are going to be blown of like, look at all this cool stuff we get to work with. You're listening to The VFX Process, where we talk to the industry's most talented artists, including film, TV, and game. From concept artists to previous 3D animators and visual effects artists, we take a deep dive into a personal project of theirs and take a look at the work that went into them, as well as show an insight into the mind, workflow, and career of each artist. For any visuals discussed in this episode, we have provided a link to images and videos should you need a bit more context. The VFX Process, getting intimate with your industry. Brought to you by Big Two Studios. If you enjoy this show and haven't already, please leave us a rating and review. It really helps us out a lot. In today's episode, Jamie chats with Jim Godaldic, a visionary virtual production and VFX supervisor whose curiosity for technology has catapulted him from an action sport cinematographer to the forefront of cutting edge cinema techniques. As a self-confessed tech nerd and even a consultant for AI software, Jim shares his predictions for the future of VFX and filmmaking. We explore virtual production technology, Unreal Engine, how to be a good VFX supervisor, the controversial topic of AI, and even a little bit of skateboarding. So get comfortable, this is gonna blow your mind. Hey Jim. How's it going? Oh, good man. Thanks for joining, uh, Jim. We really appreciate your time. No, it's cool. It worked out in perfect timing. I was on set last week, so this week I'm uh, not on set, so I'm kinda, I've got definitely more time. I know that you don't like to give yourself a title because you are a man of many skill sets and you don't want to limit yourself. What would you call your role in your career? Well, first off, I'm Jim Godoldick. <laughs> I have a very background. You know, my day to day is as a, as a virtual production and visual effects supervisor. My background is as a, a cinematographer and a visual effects artist. Most of the time, I'm, I'm supervising uh, a lot on set. Yeah, I'm a, a bit of this uh, technologist trapped in a creative's body or mind. It's hard to pick it because I like to work <laughs> yeah. on so much. But you know, whatever this metaverse is going to be, or whatever verse, <laughs> whatever hot buzzword is of tomorrow, of creating new worlds and stories and finding different ways to use technology to like accomplish that is is going to be cool. And I, I think I'll just keep working in these weird spaces of, of technology and creative arts. I'll always identify first as, you know, as a skateboarder who just happened to fall into this world of pixels and pixel creation and in cameras. I've got this podcast today and then I've got a whole thing on AI I'm doing tomorrow at Wacom. Oh, amazing. We'll save all your AI talk uh, for tomorrow. <laughs> so we'll just touch on it, I'm sure. But oh, I thought we we're just going to talk about skateboarding. Yeah, you know what? I <laughs> said to Steve, the editor, fellow skateboarder, because we've skateboarded from kids, I would love to just hang and chat skateboarding and Spike Jones and Pretty Sweet. <laughs> You were sponsored, am I correct, um, way back in early 2000? Yeah, I was I was doing, before I got heavy into this stuff, and we could talk about it, but uh, yeah, I did the whole sponsored skater snowboarder thing, and that's what I thought I was going to do for the rest of my life. Like, you know, I still skate and snowboard, and you know, my kids do, but that's what got me into filmmaking and visual effects and all that was because of like skate videos and music and art around skateboarding. You know, there's a lot of stories of friends, you know, with like Spike and Jacob Rosenberg and Ty Evans and, and Kirk Morgan and everybody of like, I think all of us that were in that skate art music world that wanted to make 
this type of art, whether it be visual effects or, or films or skate and snowboard films, it all evolves from like that childhood thing of like wanting to be creative, not quite fitting in and trying to find your find your way around this world. <laughs> I feel you big time that Jim. Yeah, growing up skateboarding, filming whatever you could on whatever kind of camera gear you could get your hands horribly, on. Horribly, probably uh-huh. too. Like, yeah, horribly. I mean, <laughs> look at all early skate videos, shaky cam, you know, like anything, nothing's in focus, you know, digital zoom and all that fun stuff. You know, did you know those guys and you got into it, like them saying like, we want to do something different in the skateboarding world. Can we, you know, can we introduce some kind of like, CG VFXy stuff. Obviously, the guys that came before me or the the contemporaries, uh, you know, uh, Johannes Gamble is kind of one of the unsung heroes of, I would say, someone who's extremely smart and creative in terms of like motion graphics and visual effects. who just figured it out. And Johannes was somebody I looked up to, but most people may not know like who Johannes is if they weren't in that like skate world or knew the girl Lakai chocolate camp. Because Johannes also worked on stuff for Spike for for his films uh, and and his other projects, you know that whole you know fully flared thing of the checkerboard wipe motion graphics. That's all Johannes's you know uh, work. And then uh, pretty sweet, Johannes and I worked together on a lot of the you know motion graphics and visual effects for the intros. I was going to say that the camera and the the breaking into like the girl logo from the. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, right with the invisible board stuff. That's like Spike and Johannes and Spike using a uh, high-speed camera. And, you know, being that, yeah, right, just had its uh, anniversary. And, and they did that whole, I think, like an hour, two-hour long interview with, you know, um, with Rick and Mike and a bunch of guys from Girl talking about, yeah, right, and P-Rod too. So I still stay in that world because it's, you know, near and dear to my heart. It never goes, does it? Yeah, if I get a phone call or something and somebody wants to do something cool, it's like for that world, it's never about money. It's it's purely of like, let's make cool shit. Cool and, shit. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. You do the stuff for the paychecks and then you do the other ones for passion, you know, just because if you get a if you get a ring from a friend like Ty or, you know, any of the other guys, they they always have like freedom to create. That's always what's cool, I think, about still doing stuff in skate and action sports. There's not a lot of money, but there is this like, hey, let's get together. Let's go film. Let's see what we can do. And, you know, technology has changed a lot. So you can do a lot more with a lot less. You know, it's still really cool to be tied into that. And, you know, if somebody saw me at some, you know, on set or something, they'd be like, oh, who's that, you know, guy who looks like a skater? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can just tell, you can pick the mech on you from, from crazy like. Oh uh, yeah. Check out the, you know, the SBs or, you know, the Tyshawns or something I would wear, or even like rolling around on set with a, with a board, you know, on the back lot or something. No, it's cool. It's really cool. Was you involved with the, with the Yeah Right green screen stuff or? No, Yeah Right was right before me. I came on uh, later to work on some of the projects with the guys at, at Garo and Chocolate and Lakai. You know, skate videos used to take multi years at times to get done, especially the big temples and uh, bigger films like, you know, Pre Sweet, Yeah, Right, like Art of Flight on the snowboard side. You know, those were multi year projects. When you joined Pretty Sweet, was you involved in that um, opening shot with the camera stuff? On that day, I wasn't there, but there was a few of us that were trying to tackle the stabilization for that opening shot because it was, it was, you know, it was a drone. So it's like, 
not many people had used. I was going to say a drone back then is, you know, it, it was a big, it was a bigger drone too. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't fully FPV, although Ty had been working with this other guy, Robert, who actually created this actual plugin that Go, that GoPro acquired, funny enough, called Real Steady. It was like a stabilization plugin. Right. Um, and uh, and Robert was, was piloting for that. But when it starts off right at Rick McCrank's face and face, it looks up, yeah. you see it start to wobble. And then when it goes over the fence, it actually clipped the fence. So we had to stabilize that whole opening shot all the way through to like where the confetti cannons blow up. And that was one thing I, I think everybody worried about too, was like the confetti cannons were going to get caught up in the props. Oh, and like take shit. The yeah, of course. That would, be, that would be an ender for sure, wouldn't it? Yeah. To just yeah. go, go but, crashing down into the school. But you know, skate style, like I, I think that's one thing that's been helpful in my like, you know, professional career, if you will, is like coming from that very like DIY, you know, figure it out yourself, you know, no film school type of thing was uh a good way to learn how to be scrappy with like less and hey you don't have a permit we're hopping fences and we're you know we could get caught and get ticketed and you know um those scenarios i, I think really help you to kind of uh, be good at problem solving like hey you have a you have a short amount of time are you going to get caught you have lookouts you know it's yeah. just there's there's something that i always go back to skateboarding helping me in my career today because skateboarding as as a whole you know is, is it's life lessons you know you, you, get, sure, you get street smarts you get you know you get culture by like the art and the music and everything around it you get like community because of the you know your friends and everybody that you meet because you're traveling you want to go to this skate spot you go to a contest you go to a concert and then there's just something very worldly and cultural about skateboarding that teaches people and it doesn't matter you know mm -hmm. your background ethnicity whatever it is like skateboarding doesn't care so it's it's really cool to use skateboarding as a model for like different things that you get into work-wise or art-wise or creating and just those just lessons you know because it's like if you're doing work in visual effects and and filmmaking it's it's a lot of like fail 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 until, yeah, until you get it i mean that's like doing tricks and learning yeah. tricks you're gonna fail a thousand times until you get that one and then once you do it you start building up that muscle memory it's the same thing in filmmaking visual effects it's like if you don't know how to to roto and you're jumping in to learn how to roto and paint or you know or learn uh, you know a new piece of tool like a game engine or you know a you know a compositing app like after effects or nuke or blender you build up that muscle memory. That's a great, uh, you know, foundation for into the VFX world. Well, I know your career isn't just VFX. Your career and all the projects that you've worked on over the over the years is is pretty crazy. Yeah, I say it's my uh, my my ADHD brain of like always wanted to work on different things and yeah. not inclined to like kind of pigeonhole myself in the projects. So it's like, yeah, it'll go from feature films to like live broadcast stuff to like action sports stuff and then documentaries and music videos. And it's just because there's there's so much cool stuff out there to do or to be involved with. And when you hear like someone that you know talking about a project that someone else is doing and they're like, oh, they're looking for so-and-so and you're like, oh, that sounds cool as hell, man. I'd love to be involved. And then you just jump in and out of all kinds of stuff that you want to get involved with, you know? Yeah, and so much of my... 
opportunities I've had have have come off of you know friends that have maybe come from like that world and gone. You know, like there's the thing of you know the the Ty Emmons and the Spikes and the Kurt Morgans and you know the Jacob Rosenbergs and people that I became friends with that I had either looked up to or been friends with ahead of time, and then you know they their careers start to take off and. You know, a lot of them just like to bring their friends in to work together, you know, and and that's just like a film crew. You know, when you work with a DP and a director, you'll see a lot of directors and DPs or production designers and visual effects suits all kind of travel with each other from project to project if they can. And it creates, you know, you get the shorthand of working with people where it's almost like you you can interpret or or almost sense like what the DP likes, or if you're the DP, what the director likes. And, you know, this is gelling that, you know, that comes together. Like it's your crew. Again, it goes back to like, who do you want to skate with? Oh, I skate with these guys, uh, girls, because they're just cool. And they just, we just vibe off each other and it's a good time. And I guess that literally translates to, you know, whatever career, if you can hang out with the same people doing stuff that you love. It's the same vibe on a film set. It's It's the same weird little world if you will, in, in like Hollywood or projects and it, it doesn't live or any production. It's that same vibe. Like you don't, you don't want bad vibes on your set. So you're not going to, you're not going to have people to do. And people that bring the bad vibes usually don't last long on that no, set and they get, you want <laughs> they them get out. replaced. <laughs> yeah, definitely. man. Yeah. My career started back in like 2009 and the team that I joined, the guy that was running the company uh, Paul Falker, he had a, a his previous studio was called Destroy All Monsters, and his team were like a small team at the start. They're they're a lot bigger now, but when I joined, I could tell that like family vibe. It was kind of like a bunch of friends working on like big movies together, and they would love to just go from one project to the next together. And when you go around with those people, it's always a good time, you know. It, inevitably when things get bigger it's you know new people come in it's a different ball game but for those moments where you're with a good bunch of people that you love it's kind of like a family friendship that's when you do your best work i think yeah, man. you know is when when spirits are good and 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 you get a vibe i mean that's what any good i think director or super you know just creative um you want to hit that vibe you know one one good example of that would be like you know the early ilm days like they had that you know a lot of people try to emulate that vibe of like hey here's this band of creative misfits you know from like technology to model makers and they do a great job of telling that story in the disney plus uh ilm doc and then then you know i think the same thing too of like today's vibes would be like you know the daniels with everything everywhere all at once like the first time i met the daniels was like 2012 at the vimeo awards like they were giving a presentation i was giving a presentation you're like man these these guys have something special and they were just doing like you know music videos and stuff at that time but they had this such this electric vibe and then when you see like all the bts and the and the team that they've worked with previous till now like michelle yo and, and jamie lee curtis and and kiwi kwan and everybody they're just like look at those morning like stretch and yoga and vibey sessions that they have and the fun they have on set like who wouldn't want to be part of you know a project like that or or to feel part of that like family vibe you don't always get that you know it's sometimes it's like straight work you know it's like high pressure 
you know, and, and it is at times, you know, cause there's a lot of money on the line, you know, especially for very big projects, but you still gotta have fun. If it's, if it's too serious, like, and it's all work, it kind of, you know, you get burnout. You need that balance, then, yeah. I mean, going back to starting out in like v- VFX, is is that what you initially started to do? So it was, you know, skateboard, and then you. How was that transition into? Oh, now I'm doing CGI stuff. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to say you do one thing because it's a lot of different stuff. But that the CG the CG world. So let's say I was competing, you know, in skateboarding, snowboarding, and I traveled around. And I was, you know, had a camera. So you know, and you in that time frame you're kind of like the transition from like high cameras into like full three trip cameras so you know your dvx 100s and your gl1s and kind of that transition over from high to mini dv especially in the skate world was um you know grabbing camera and going to contests and filming and then submitting that so like my first paycheck as like a you know a videographer camera camera operator ever was for, for form one video magazine submitting footage getting that footage acquired by 401 and you know going like oh i got i just got a paycheck you know as as long as 401 kept acquiring your footage and stuff then you need to be sent out there and you know doing some other stuff or they licensed the footage and they wound up licensing my footage to uh uh video game for intros at that time which i think was uh sean palmer's pro snowboarder so i had my footage in the intros for the video game and i got a check with a copy of the video game and it was like healthy yeah. well, is, is this like the start of the career you know and that got me into into like learning more about cinematography through skateboarding and snowboarding and like i grew up on all these skate videos and then all the the traditional film of like being an 80s kid between you know spielberg and zemeckis and 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 kind of all those sci-fi stop motion projects that are always like well how do you, how did they do this stuff? Always wanting to be kind of pegged to not be like, I didn't fully know younger what visual effects fully was. And, you know, computer generated graphics in the eighties was just starting to get used in there. You know, when you start hitting things um, from like the early days up to like your Jurassic park, you know, big, big booming days. It, it was just a natural progression. I think of how I went from like learning more about, cameras and wanting to learn about cameras and editing because of skateboarding i had learned about you know filmmaking and, and trying to shoot properly for for skating snowboarding and then getting hired for these little things to shoot like little small commercials and uh, music videos and really indie indie level stuff around you know like new york and new jersey that's where i grew up when i got hurt um one time in a, a happened to be in a pretty bad car accident i was laid up and that's about the time that one step beyond came out from audio and that was a groundbreaking uh film in terms of its motion graphics too not only for you know just the visuals and the amazing skating in that because audio at that time was like you know it was the street company (laughs) besides some of the other ones out there but that video was groundbreaking motion graphics you know from from what it was doing and that like because i was laid up I was just like super inspired and was like, oh, I'm going to dive into learning more about like CG and motion graphics. So I had a computer. Oh, I'm going to learn After Effects, you know, at that time. And it, well, it was a hurdle, you know, to, to, you know, get into this and, you know, teach yourself motion graphics. And at that time, it wasn't YouTube. It was like, you uh, had to yeah, get man. books. You had to get books. And it was like, you know, 
free all of the you know at your fingertips you know tutorials that are out today and you had to go by books you had to go by experimenting you had to like go to you know events if you could and and kind of like dive in into these different areas there were early forums you know there was there's definitely you know some early uh, mograph forums back in the day that were like you know uh, this is like early days of people. So, you know, Mike used to have his website up pretty early to where he would share all his like, you know, After Effects Cinema 4D stuff. And it was probably when he was doing more like, you know, visuals or, you know, shows or EDM stuff. And I just remember like people's early stuff was like very tricky even then. But I would grab his project templates that he would just throw out for free on his website and just download them and dissect them. And just go, oh, okay, I see this is like how he's doing, you know, these blends and this is how he's setting up this stuff. And this is before anybody even knew like the everydays, but you always know people was just like on it. There'd be a new drop from him on his website. He, he was awesomely gracious of like just sharing with the community. That kind of blossomed in past, you know, into getting more into like the heavier side of, of, of visual effects and like CGs because I started... I started knowing that to kind of pay the bills, the more traditional work in like commercials and, you know, brand projects and all that had bigger budgets at that, at that time too. Well, if I spend more time teaching myself this or, you know, trying to learn about different things, because at the time is, you know, Shake was still out and that was still, you know, kind of, this is pre-nuke. Maya was too expensive. So I was just like jumping into you know, into different tools. Cause like learning Maya was, was, it was an expensive license for, you know, an independent freelancer. And then that's how I came across like Cinema 4D. So I was like a big After Effects Cinema 4D guy early on, you know, like motion graphics and visual effects, you know, it started transitioning into like getting bigger, bigger jobs in terms of like being parts of teams. And, and then it, it was a little bit later that I started to get deep into like the heavier side of CG and visual effects, like as my career progressed. So you've got a real good like mixed bag and understanding of, of edit and cinematography and, you know, spending that time to really sort of hone in on some skills and develop them for, yeah, forward. Because I think they benefit each other. I mean, I dove more into to editing and being an editor too. And I think that made me a better cinematographer because I wasn't wasting time shooting stuff I didn't need, you know, or if I was working, if I was the editor and I was working with a DP on the project or cinematographer, you know, and you collaborate, you know, DP with, with, you know, editor or editorial team is, um, you know, you, you, you start to understand shot ratios, like half the stuff that you're shooting may not ever end up in, in the edit. And when I would then go out and, and shoot things or get hired as, you know, as a cinematographer or DP, I would shoot for the edit. And then I think sitting in these different positions that I have over my career of like, you know, going from, you know, camera to editorial to, to visual effects, working with different teams, it gave me, it gave me a good respect for those other teams and what they have to do. It gave me really good insight and knowledge into like how teams work together or how smaller teams work together and then combine with bigger teams, especially on, you know, on feature films, it's usually not just one vendor or one you know, particular set of teams. It's multiple teams. It takes a village. It's one thing of managing expectations and understanding egos and understanding the dynamics of 
you know, production, post, visual effects, sound, editorial, like it, it, it's a lot that comes together, even for small projects. You know, it's like a, creating that dynamic of, of teams is like a really important thing that when you're an individual artist, you don't always get to see. I think the way that I came up was, was, was really good for me just because I wore multiple hats. It gives you a good view of like the different roles that when you get into, you know, broadcast or you get into visual effects, or you get into traditional commercial production, TV, and even live events, you start to understand the team dynamics better. You mentioned egos and there is definitely a lot of them in the industry for sure. I shouldn't even say egos. We should just say people skills. Like that is one big thing that you always have to learn to deal with. And sometimes that's hard for artists, you know, for creative people. A lot of us are introverts. Some are really outgoing. And then you have artists. And, and for me as, as, a, as a supervisor, you get to know like when you build a team or you come in to, to, to run a team where those artists sit, like you're going to go, Hey, this person is probably going to be really good on set and really good to drive, you know, client sessions or anything like that. And then you may just have artists that are a little bit more reserved. Like maybe they don't like to speak in, in front of big crowds. You want to try and help them, but you also know where their comfortability is and where their skill set sits. And then you not only set the team up for success, but you set them up for success too. Because as a super, you know, in these environments, like you're you're only as good as your team. I've worked for bad soups before and I've worked for amazing soups before. And same thing for directors and DPs and studio heads. And that dynamic of people skills is probably number one. Because if something goes wrong, you can't just sit back and then like it goes to the 12th hour and then like clients like, what do you mean? You know, we've got to re-render all these passes. And it's just like, you know, it's another thing to be said of having a good producer. Of course, man. It's definitely people skills. So if you know that someone's the particular way, you know how to kind of handle them or put them where is they're most comfortable and those more, in, you know, introverted people who are equally as amazing, but they just like to keep themselves to themselves, but they get the work done. How did you um, fit into that role of supervisor then, Jim? Did you just naturally, you know, you've got those sort of team leading skills and it just naturally happened for you? You know, I had been leading teams a little bit earlier from like editorial department as like a senior editor on like, you know, some um, animated and TV shows and, you know, having that kind of team lead role. And, you know, at first it was a small team, like just, you know, running like an, a smaller editorial team and then going into like motion graphic supervision, which is kind of like a CG lead too, if you will. And then just progressing of like understanding what it is to like deal with client, manage expectations, work with production, understanding budgets. It kind of just naturally progressed into like those supervisor roles of like, I knew the creative and I knew the technology really well. So I could, I could articulate and break down the really tech parts to production or to the other creatives and be able to, you know, make it in more bite-sized for the different teams and how how things would would come together. And then as my career progressed, like those supervisor opportunities or, you know, like, you know, leading camera teams as as, you know, as a DP you you get a good look at like how to to manage teams. You've got to be really good at, at communicating and kind of setting up those 
those expectations, but also being able to call out, you know, any red flags that might be popping up uh, way ahead of time. And you, and being able to problem solve on the fly, it's really stressful uh, on on a lot of really big projects when there's big budgets and lots of teams and lots of people waiting either for you and your team or you're waiting for them. So it's, it's a way to of like being able to, you know, problem solve in, in a way that's beneficial to, you know, the project and the teams. You know, as you're, as you're working on these projects as supervisor and DLP and a cinematographer, how did you kind of stay up to date with the technology moving forward whilst on all these projects? I may be skipping a lot of time here, but up to the point of, you know, the world of virtual production and the Unreal Engine side of things, I know virtual production is definitely not just the the Mandalorian, the yeah. walls. It's, 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 it's way before that in cinema history, of course. But, yeah. you, you know, that this new era of, of, of productions and stuff, how did you keep up to date with that technology? Yeah, I, I think it's because I had a foot or a hand in those different worlds as my career progressed between like commercials and music videos and, and Ed live events and, and then stepping into feature films, you know, uh, later on was that you you start to pick up on the different tools, both software and hardware. And I was always a camera geek and and always super into like what the new tech is. So I was just like, I remember when the first iPod came out and I was just like right online, you know, I grabbed that thing and and did it. You know, I was like taking apart computers and VCRs and things as a kid just to put them back together. To, so it's always, I think that tech thing of always like, what's the next thing has always been part of my oh, yeah. okay. you know, interest. Makes- um, and especially as my career progressed, it'd be like, okay, you know, you'd have things like SIGGRAPH and NEB and, and a lot of the other trade shows, um, you know, and, and, and magazines were obviously really huge, you know, Cinefax and American Cinematographer and, and other, you know, really good publications that were out there. They're kind of like, I'd always like go right to the BTS or I'd always go right to the articles and be like, all right, how did they do it? How did this DP do it? How did the visual effects team do it? how did this motion graphics team or artist do this? And, uh, you know, uh, CG World and 3D World magazines, like all that stuff. You're just like, okay, can't wait to dissect. <laughs> just like a sponge, just take yeah. it all in and just... I think you yeah, have to be. And looking outside of our worlds too, in terms of like visual facts and entertainment of like, hey, are there things that I have used from the camera side or from even friends that were in music and, and live events to be like, well, I have friends that are doing, you know, we're super early on projection mapping. And it's like front projection, rear projection, that's the early days of virtual production. Yeah, you man. Know? And, and that that world started to accelerate and, you know, we saw it. And, you know, usually when these tools are early, they may, may not be 100% right for the project, but you can see the breadcrumbs in the potential as the project mature. And that's the same thing with like, with, you know, with Unreal Engine and, you know, doing a project years ago with, uh, with Epic, with, uh, with, uh, Kim Libreri and, um, and the mill on this early project was, uh, like, oh, here's this game engine or here's this real time tool that has the potential. And my mind was racing, seeing a lot of the tech artists and our engineering team and what I was working on with a close friend was like, the seed got planted and this was, this was like, I had known of real-time tools, you know, things with like touch designer, mad mapper with projection action. There was, you know, Houdini, things like that. So there were like tools and the breadcrumbs were, have been dropping for, for years now. 
And I think everybody's been chasing, uh, you know, real-time rendering versus just waiting for boxes to of render. Of course, man. No one wants <laughs> to sit around forever. Yeah. Is, uh, yeah. You know, we want it now. We're impatient, especially with social media and our attention spans. So it's like, you know, real-time real time is, is the thing. As these tools come out, my, my brain goes like, hey, this would be really cool for here. You know, or we did this project. Can you imagine if we had, you know, this game engine or this camera or this depth camera, you know, it's like early experimenting with, you know, connect cameras and Intel, uh, real sense cameras, like early on for, you know, for immersive and, and even for, you know, VR and AR, the early days. It's like, I think, I think an early AR project I did was like early 2009, like using, you know, using, uh, like geofencing, uh, with early, you know, iOS and, and web-based apps for that. And you go, oh, this is super cool potential, you know, for this. And, you know, one day this stuff will be much easier to do. You won't have to spend so much time coding the back end of it. I, I think we're starting to get really close to having a lot of the real-time stuff be almost instantaneous, you know, especially with a lot of the computer vision, machine learning, and, and AI, you know, generative AI that we're hitting. But to, to like bring it back to your question is, I just always keep, you know, an eye on things that are maybe not in our world, but if it's if it's you know capture related from any form of a camera, whether it be, you know, your big cameras from your Aries, your Reds, your Sony's, your Black Magics, your Canons, um, and seeing what they're doing and progressing on, and thinking of like, well, if I take one camera, I can do this. If I take a hundred cameras, I can do this, and you start to go into volumetric capture and, you know, computational photography and, and photogrammetry. And all of it's just trying to simulate, you know, the real world, you know, we're, we're, that's what the promise of the metaverse is, is like doing a one-to-one -one digital double of the real world into that for escapism. It's like, what's, what's wrong with this world? Well, many things, of course, but it is, it's fascinating that, yeah, everybody's trying to replicate realism, yet they're amongst realism, but they want to it's an escape. It's like films. Yeah, it's a, yeah, absolutely, man. Let's go somewhere. You know, it's it's realist realism, but it's an it's a different world. It's, a, it's separate from there, I and mean, we can just go there and yeah, separate. You know, you know, it's 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 magic, and that's what's cool about it. Because a friend, uh, you know, and director uh, who comes from Skate World too, Jacob Rosenberg, who's super into magic, he's friends with a lot of magicians. There's something to be said about magic. There's a lot of practicing magicians in roles as like dps and and you know visual effects and all that and it's cool about like the mysticism and the slide of hand i mean that's what we do in our world is like you're not supposed to see what we do like a magician you're not supposed to see the slide of hand with the card yeah. and with you know the, the coin disappearing or anything like that the best vfx are the ones that you just don't realize are vfx you know we've all seen bad visual effects bad motion graphics you know it, it looks like a early 90s weatherman uh bad chroma key uh to where it's just like it you know uh, the subject pops you know on on screen or the the asset pops and the human eye admit, is so attuned today to be like that is not a good comp shot and, <laughs> yeah. and and it's no disservice to any of the artists that work on any of the shots because you know sometimes bad visual effects isn't on on the team it could be a budgetary thing it could be a yeah, turnaround for sure. kind of thing it could be a creative thing yeah man absolutely but you know, it's just you get try. It's trial by fire. Like once it is on the screen, you're subject to <laughs> yeah, yeah. to the to the feedback, whether positive or negative. And you know, that's one thing I think right now is is really big in in CG and visual effects. Is like there's there's a lot of 
misinformation about what it takes to get visual facts. And there's this whole thing of like bad visual facts, you know, especially in the press, I want to say, you know, in the past couple of years, especially like this past year with, with uh, things like Barbie and Oppenheimer and all that, there is a misunderstanding or, or misconstruing of how this work gets done and how much of it gets done. And there is no project this like this day and age that doesn't get touched by visual effects. And it's the same thing like virtual production. Visual effects is a blanket term. You know, you've got you know, you've got full computer generated shots versus shots that are touched up by visual effects where, you know, even color grading is visual effects. Like you're manipulating color signals and pixels on images. So it is a visual effect. You know, it's just a classification of terms by the media that they may not be as informed of those that are in the world of this, of what it takes to, to get this stuff done. And it's a little dismissive. It kind of, you know, I, I definitely say it's, some of the stuff would definitely piss me off a bit too. If, if, if I was on the team and, you know, some of the projects that I've worked on have been like, well, you know, it's a little dismissive to be like, oh, well, you know, this big time director didn't use you know, any visual effects or this didn't use any CG. And then I think there's a misunderstanding of the publication and the writer yeah. understanding the, the the context of what that director, DP or studio had said about the amount of work done on that. And I think there needs to be better education to the media and to these writers who are not in this world and may just report on it to really understand, like sit down with the VFX suits, which they do at time, you know, they, they, they come back to it, but these like sensationalized headlines to be like, oh, this big project didn't use any CG. Uh, yeah. like and that's, that's almost like what they fish for almost like, and, and then it's really bad because it can completely destroy, not destroy. It's but a cloud grab. Like, yeah. Yeah. Big time. Like it let's put an article out with a headline, Oppenheimer used no CG. And everyone's like, what the fuck? You know? And yeah, you, you're right. They're kind of, they lack the education, but at the, at the same time, they're looking for it's that. It's dismissive to all the work that got done yeah. by all the artists, you know, that worked extremely hard. And I don't think that that's any, no one had set out to do that. I know, you know, he's a very uh, practical and I love practical effects. Like I, I love being able to shoot things in camera. It's the whole purpose of in-camera visual effects too. And I don't think any of the filmmakers are setting out because they know how much work visual effects teams and CGs teams and practical effects teams do to that. I think just, just to like the misunderstanding of like what the media portrays this stuff as. And, you know, it's great that people like, you know, Todd Vizari, uh, you know, ILM uh, visual effects, he's very proponent, Todd Squires, you know, people that started this in the early days that are, you know, champions and, and, and leads now there's tons of amazing artists and, and visual effects supervisors and CG soups, you know, across the globe that will speak up for their teams, you know, because it's the sleepless nights, it's the time away from your families. It's, you know, it's like, you know, all hands on deck. Nobody's going home for X amount of times. It shouldn't be that way because that comes down to like good management and good time management and good budget management, but that doesn't always happen. And sometimes it, there is those sleepless nights to turn things around and it's just the way, you know, it's, it's the weighing of things uh, of how to get shots done. I mean, like I've worked with 
amazing visual effects show supervisors like him and Bailey. I've done two projects with um, with him and, and Robert Zemeckis and, and, and Don Burgess and, and the whole team. And I think visual, other visual effects supervisors, CG soups, and other HODs that have come up in the ranks too, they have a mutual respect and they, you know, they know when to lean into the team to get get what they need and get things done for the director and for that particular project. But them coming up as artists too, there's a there's a mutual respect. And it's also just a, a respect of people. And that's back to the thing about saying like having good people skills is like Absolutely you man. know, you don't want to burn out your artists. You don't want someone to think you're an ass because you have to come down on them because the shots are late or whatever it is, you know, you have no idea what's going on with that person on the other side. Like is something going on at home? So that's why it's a good thing as a suit to have a relationship with your team where it's just not like a faceless thing. They're not just a line item budget thing to where it's just like, oh, well, here's these five faceless artists that I never see and they're in Mumbai or they're in Romania or LA or wherever it is. Like get to know your team. It, It always comes back down to like being able to interface with, other human beings i know we keep circling back to skateboarding but i think that's just (laughs) something i can't help you know it's something that we both love i'm curious to imagine what that opening shot of the pretty sweet movie would look like now with the technologies now and what were the limitations back then that could possibly be overcome now and improved on or could you do something way bigger way crazier on like pretty sweet versus like art of flight there was always room to experiment. And and I would say Art of Flight was a different pro- a different project in experimentation of new technology, which, you know, that film was groundbreaking. It pushed action sports films like into another realm. And I think the same thing for any of uh, the other films too, from skate the skate side, from like Plan B through to the girl films. And, and there's so many more to explain. But if you look at Pretty Sweet and Art of Flight, you know, between a skate and a, a snow film that were groundbreaking that affected you know, normal mainstream projects as well. So those those were definitely affected past just the skate industry. Is that if we if we had things today like you know AI and machine learning advancements that are here today, even game engines, is you know I could say like me and Johannes and Spike and Ty and Misa and and everybody else at those projects would have been all over it like using mid journey and dolly and stable diffusion uh to treat the stuff that we that we had shot already or to just experiment and because you can iterate faster getting a shot rendered out and turning it around and, and being able to show it to you know any of the skaters who were you know featured at that time for their intro the water bench open that that i was working on that took multiple passes you know and that was that was multiple things or like even you know corey you know, Corey's pop popping out of the of the trash bin, and you know, like uh, Elijah's part in the multiplicity, uh, Jay Quan of like riding up. You know, that's just all road of work. And but technology wise, I think we would have been able to get shots out quicker. We would have been able to do more shots uh, in terms of like motion graphics and visual effects on that, both on Art of Flight and on Pretty Sweet. We're using everything: phantom cameras, film cameras. You know everything you can think of hvx 200s like you talk about mixed media format the post on that <laughs> you know is why these films took forever to get out it's like you know for thai stuff it's like being in thai's dungeon and everybody coming over to like edit and look at footage and but yeah it, it would advance things and i think that's what's cool about 
the approach in projects like that is you get way more time. I would say time to experiment. Like there's always the due dates and it's like really with skate, you know, skate and snowboard videos, like you're rendering stuff down until the premiere is later that day or that night. You're running with a final copy to the premiere. Really just rendering things out at the last minute to get like somebody's tweak or somebody got one more trick. You know, there's always the, you know, Costin flew out to here and it's like, you got one more day to get this done. And if you get it, it's in the film. But it's if in. not, you miss, there's shots that I've missed the cutoff for. You know, there's shots in Art of Flight that we tried to render out, you know, some visual effects shots. There was a, there was a shot that in Art of Flight where I've been rendering shots out to do this like to the beat mode of like, you know, getting the guys because it was a triple hit. So one guy was going off the center, two other guys were going off the sides and landing. And it was like the two guys are supposed to like, you know, be rotoed out and disappear on the beats, you know? And I remember just missing like the time for it to get put into it. So you'll see in one of the the shots in Art of Flight, like the guy slips out um, of of the landing. And I was like, you know, that was supposed to be a shot that it's was meant to be a visual effect shot, but it's just like, yeah, you're working down to the wire. It's like, oh man, it didn't get loaded up to, you know, to we transfer, you know, and the time it was to be ready for like, for the grade or for the final, you know, for the final output. So, and it happens sometimes things, things have to do it. But yeah, today's day and age with the tech, yeah, I would think if you go back to those times for those projects, um, being that you're working with such a collaborative environment of, of different people, you get the, you know, at times carte blanche to think of some crazy stuff and go, hey, there's this new thing out there, new plug-in, there's a new camera, you know, and working with people like that, it, it was always just like, we'll try it because let's see, nobody's done it before. And I think that's, uh, testament to you, just coming from that that world is the experimenting to try a new look or to try a new a new thing a new angle rig somebody up with uh you know some weird weird version of a snorri cam to go skating or you know making dollies out of you know angle grinders and hacking <laughs> things together for you know doing things the same thing in snow of like you know, using your snowboard as a, as a dolly and then trying to figure out how to stabilize it. Cause when you're going over the snow, it's just, you know, snow is not even as, you know, making a, uh, a dolly rig out of like weird, you know, skateboard parts. Skateboard makes the perfect dolly. Of course, man. Put soft, some big, chunk, soft wheels. big chunky wheels on and you're, you're away. Yeah, filmer wheels. There's a good example of it. Even though it was rollerblading, the documentary or that new series uh, about early uh, NBA basketball, they had a camera operator who was really good at rollerblading and they built that in so he could get in and out oh, okay. on, you know, on the follow cam. They even built what looked like a little wedge ramp or quarter pipe that he would ride up to. So he could skate alongside, get that follow cam of, you know, the NBA uh, guys, you know, in the studio and get that angle. And then he would get the rise up angle by, by rollerblading up, you know, that, that wedge ramp to get that, you know, finish of the dunk or that shot. So you always see like that DIY thing, even yeah, on a man. high level goes in because it just gets you new, new vantage point. But yeah, the new tech now is, uh, it moves really fast. You know, if we talk about like game engines, like, you know, Unreal, and we talk about like all the AI stuff that has been, you know, it's kind of like gangbusters. It's been around for a bit, but really in the past no, it's kind of year and a half, hard, man. You know, and you talk about like procedurally generated content, 
you know, especially from the game engine side, Houdini side, it's cool because for me, for especially for like previs and tech, you can iterate ideas so much quicker and you can have 500 ideas instead of 10. And instead of taking a team two weeks, it could take one artist to two artists to spit out a thousand things. And yes, there is the whole legality and copyright issues that come with the tech, but I'm hopeful that that stuff with generative AI and the kind of data scraping that is going on that, you know, uh, mid journey, everybody's like in the style of, I am a big proponent of like artists should get paid and, and it's these big companies are using artists work as a input, the output should be pay that artist and should be to do things the right way. So it's, it's kind of cool that a big company like Adobe is taking an ethical path at this because they're using their trained data for, you know, Adobe Firefly off of what they have in internally at Adobe through like Adobe stock and some of this other stuff. It gets in the weeds. There's the ethical and the unethical of like, you know, generative AI and all these platforms out there. And I do feel like there needs to be some regulation of, you know, AI and copyright protection. Cause I wouldn't want to put art out there if, you know, if I was uh, an artist doing original things and then all of a sudden it's replicated, you know, it's, it's like the Andy Warhol effect of like, Hey, was this, was this image manipulated enough from the original that it's a newer work of art yeah. where, you know, there's, there's definitely the fine lines of where it is. And I'm no lawyer. I'm not a copyright lawyer or <laughs> you know that type of thing. So I don't want to get in the weeds of saying what could it couldn't be. It's a time where it's all getting worked out, I think, isn't it? Like what, how can it be used? Who's used, you know, why and how? And, and it's, it's kind of a, an exciting time. There's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of hate, which is, to me, I get it. But then I don't on the other end. It's like, I've been using all this stuff. I've, tr- I've tried every platform out. Um, and there's a lot of them. You know, there's, there is so many different flavors of everything from like things, if you're in games, things, if you're in films, brand advertising, stills, motion, all this stuff is rampant and it's hard to keep on top of because there's a new one every day. Yeah. Literally new, new stuff's coming out and like now this tool can do this. It's yeah. Kitbash 3d to caliber to big, medium, small, to mid journey, to stable diffusion, to wonder dynamics, to move AI. It's exciting, but it's daunting too. And it, you get a lot of people, a lot of people ask me like, how do you stay on top of it? And it's like, I know where to look. You know, a lot of the stuff I'm fortunate to be like, you know, either a beta tester or consultant for, for a lot of this stuff. And you pay attention to things that are like, maybe not in our world yet, but you could look at that tool and say, oh man, that would really save me time if I could use that or if they tweak this tool for what I need to do. If Roto and Paint and, and, keyframing of, of tedious tasks, not the artful tasks that still are going to take a human being to put in, you know, their emotion and their yeah, background love, and their yeah. brain power, but the tedious stuff, who the hell wants to sit there and roto out hundreds of friends? Not me. Give me, no, give me machine learning me. and computer <laughs> yeah. vision all day long for, for that stuff. But the artist input, you know, uh, mocap driven, uh, things, uh, you know, in terms of that, like, you know, what, what Andy Circus does, like uh, it's negligible to say like, well, Andy Circus and other mocap actors or, or, you know, PCAP actors aren't putting much into things. Like that's definitely not true. Like a, a animator 
or, um, you know, an artist is going to take those sessions from like mocap, PCAP, facial animation and all this, and they'll enhance it. But, you know, an Andy Serkis type of, 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 of actor is still going to put same thing for, you know, Avatar. Yeah. They're going to use that reference, that previous, that tech viz has that, and then they're going to enhance it with what it is that they, what they've done. And, and that's still in a root of traditional animation. Yeah, definitely. With AI, it's kind of having the user input on top of the AI kind of generated um, pieces, you know, just repurposing roles and, and, and kind of using it, you know, in, in yeah. its new way, like in a different way, but kind of. But look at it, the two of us right now, we could be in a multi-user Unreal sen- uh, session with, with MetaHuman, you know, creator and animator. Uh, or we could be in a tool like Ziva Dynamics, and it could just be the two of us doing a project together. And we could be getting, you know, building environments with like kit bashing from like Kitbash 3D, Turbo Squid, you know, pick your flavor of where the assets are coming from. The tools that are at our fingertips right now for either, I mean, there's free stuff out there, especially with Epic Marketplace. Yeah, man. What a, what a playground. Yeah, it's like, you know, every every drop, every monthly drop for like, hey, here's the free stuff from the Epic Marketplace. It's like, it's amazing. You know, free stuff, keep bashing things, putting things together to just get that kind of vision across is, you know, what we do all the time, you know. So any kind of opportunity to just grab stuff and chuck it together and build that flavor and idea, you know, it's similar to with the AI. Yeah, that's what really got me excited about Unreal Engine, you know, um, years ago was as a DP and and as somebody in posting VFX and, and creating is I have my own ideas, not just the ideas that I am trying to help solve and accomplish with other directors and, and other team members, but my own projects that I want to do. And I saw these tools coming, you know, I saw real time coming because I, you know, I came up through all the post renderers, you know, everything from, you know, your typical DCC renderers, uh, you know, with C4D and Maya and Max and, and how we've got Blender. But look what you can do with all the free stuff. If you just had Blender and you had Unreal Engine, you could do your own film. Absolutely, man. You could crowdsource it through, you know, Kickstarter or, or any other type of uh, event. So, you know, and you'll always hear this, like the democratization of these tools. It's what sped everything up. And yeah, a lot of the AI stuff is pay to play. It's behind the paywall. If the tool's worth it, I'm going to pay for it. You know, in those early days of like everybody was just like, you know, pirating <laughs> Maya and and other things because it was it was you had to, man. <laughs> it was, was not ex- democratized. <laughs> no. You know, not I paid for my licenses, but you know, it took me a while to, you know, to, you know, get enough freelance gigs to pay for the more expensive licenses early on. As I've got to work with a lot of these companies, you know, they're small teams. Like the the team at Kipash 3D, it's a small core team. The the teams at like big, medium, small, paying those people for for what the time and effort they put in to do this stuff, you know, the models and the kits that these teams are putting out, you know, Max and his team at, at, at Kitbash and, you know, even the teams that are now part of Epic, you know, with Epic's new fab um, solution, which, you know, was, was you know, some other mix of, uh, of, of other things you had with Albin's team uh, early on with the acquisitions was... Uh, you know, mega scans. It's super easy. It doesn't mean that your 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 mega scans is going to be the final, but like the fact that you can whip up an environment, you can take a template, you can lay cameras, you can lay you know actors, you can throw you know NPC metahumans yeah, in man. there. 
you could basically like avatar does you can shoot the film once digitally and then go shoot it <laughs> again what was it like stepping into the uh, real-time renderer uh, real-time game engine like unreal was it complete playground what was the first time experience for yourself it was awesome and frustrating at the same time because it's a game engine that is now shifted into being a creative tool for film and tv and that's not it, that's not what it was built for so there's still some hurdles that I think Epic and some of the other engines out there and some of the other tools, even Houdini and Touch Designer and Notch and all this other stuff that's out there. Sometimes us as creatives want to do things that the tools are not inherently built for by the engineers. And sometimes engineers build things in a way that the end user, they think it's how we're going to use it. You know, Epic and some of the other people have been really good at listening to all of us as, as end users and trying to adapt these tools. And when I jumped into it, what I was really excited about was like, I knew what it took in Maya and C4D and After Effects and other tools to get around the hurdles. And it was nice to look at like a rail engine as a hub. I can get assets in, I can even get plates in as, as media textures and just throw things in and just like start to lay out like lighting plots where cameras are. So for me, as, as like, even as pitch biz, to, to land things as a freelancer. If you're a cinematographer, I probably said this like five, six years ago when I did like an early masterclass of like, hey, pay attention, like these real-time tools are coming, was even if you're a DP or a cinematographer, a camera operator, wherever it is, or you're a gaffer, like learn the 3D tools because it gives you, you know, the freedom. A lot of stuff starts off in production design and all that in CAD, in SketchUp, in AutoCAD, and other things like that. And then they'll they'll take a step over into Max and Maya and Blender and Unreal Engine and, and and other tools, but just for like setting things up for visualization is like a big thing that got me psyched in real time tools because I could go in to a director if if I was the cinematographer I could go in and know I could lay my own cameras and then I can animate them I could you know do dolly moves and I can simulate techno cranes and I can simulate drones and that way as a creative to some ideas to like an agency to a studio or whatever I, I could just do my own pitch viz you know or could do my own tech viz and previs and be like hey the techno is going to go here we're going to be this far away from this set piece or this led wall whatever it was and it got my you know juices flowing to be like okay it's going to be really easy for me to share my creative ideas or technical execution via using this real-time engine and then you know this is way before MetaHuman ever came. This is this is early days of of, of Unreal Engine. But see, seeing the potential, yeah, that's what it was. But picking up on all the tech that's always moving, you've kind of got that. I can see the vision in the few in the few years time of where this is going to go. So clearly, getting excited early on to where it could be in the next couple of years. I'm just a tech tech geek. I like I like toys. <laughs> what are the funnest things that you're playing with at the minute? Like what new kind of exciting stuff are you involved with at the moment obviously all the stuff on the real-time tools it's heavy you know i i would say i'm i'm switzerland in that like i will use whatever tool is the right tool for the job and i'll take different hardware tools you know camera pieces you know uh you know uh, camera arrays things like that real-time stitching whatever it is you know depth sensing <laughs> camera arrays and things like that my hub from real-time tools is going to be unreal. Uh, I've been spending way more time uh, in Blender uh, because it's free. 
uh, too, because there's such a great community around both, you know, between Blender and with Unreal. There's a lot of people doing amazing things with procedurally generated content. I, I wish I had as many cycles as I could and, and time in the day to jump even deeper into, you know, um, all the new stuff with like Houdini and Touch Designer and and things like that. So I'll, I'll kind of like pick times to, you know, play with hardware and software together. You know, it's like, I love, you know, I, I love these force wheels that I use called Noto wheels with Unreal Engine to drive, you know, to drive camera animation and all that, just because coming from camera, that's how we would operate, you know, remote heads or anything is via Noto wheels. And, uh, you know, force or friction wheels are, are, you know, they've been around for, 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 you know, gear heads for a real long time, but the Noto wheels are great because Boyd has an Unreal plugin that works okay. within that. So I can, I can drive any of the virtual camera systems or remote heads on like a simulating a techno crane or, you know, uh, anything like that along camera splines with this hardware input. So it's like muscle memory. If I hand it over to another camera operator, which you've done, done it in like Pinocchio and some other stuff where you want a person very familiar with camera framing all that uh, to, to maybe smooth out your camera animation or your camera paths from a, be, you know, be a way of like, We'd never frame up this shot this way because a traditional DP or camera operator may be, you know, doing it. And it's just, it's implanted in your head from years and years of doing that. But yeah, uh, playing with toys like that, playing with like different input devices, anything from like MIDI inputs to, you know, to, to different input devices through uh, triggers, you know, to, to do lighting. So, you know, hooking up you know, a, a set of Vortex 8 cinema lights or sky panels to uh, to Unreal Engine and then driving them, you know, like you would for a live visual, like a, like a Dead Mouse concert over DMX or Artnet. It's just really cool to experiment with that stuff because I can use it for a live show or a broadcast show or I can use it for a feature film. So it's cool to experiment. And you can do this with cheap stuff. Like you can, you can get DMX lights hooked up to Unreal Engine with some stuff like right off of Amazon. You don't need the $5,000 lights. It's great when you have those because they're going to be true cinema lights, but you can start off with this stuff like barrier to entry. Uh, you know, Blender's free, Epic's free, DaVinci Resolve is free for like the, the base models. So you have all these tools that are out there, like even a lot of the AI tools for just experimenting. Like you'll get a certain amount of token cloud credits to just play with. That's how they get you. It's like dangling a carrot. And you want you want the four K version? No pay. Yeah, here's your thirty dollars a month or whatever it is. And you know, same for for runway or you know all, any of the other tools. It's like they get you with the free stuff, and then you just start your brain starts kicking in, and you're like, oh, I need I need a thousand. I was gonna say advice for anybody that's kind of like seen the overwhelming amount of tools and software. But I think you've just mentioned that what you can use and and what works just go with that yeah because there's a lot there's a lot out there and i would say just pick one thing and dive in you know it's like i try to do it i'm not always good at get at it in in terms of like scheduling the time to be like oh yeah i have you know i've got a whiteboard here with my full r d list of everything i want to do and after 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 i get past every month i'm like shit i didn't get to do this this and this pick one thing if you're if you're a DP or a gaffer, and you don't know CG, pick up Blender or Unreal Engine. Learn how to make a cube. Learn how to make a donut. Learn how to put a camera in there. Learn how to light a scene. I would say 
one of the biggest things that that I still see that I'm still working on too is just getting getting better at lighting. And I get it. You know, I get cameras and lighting from the traditional world, and I know what they should look like in the real world. So we're always trying to emulate that, either in real time rendering or post rendering. So even for the the Unreal artists or the CG artists or lighting TD now is like you've got post rendering. Post rendering is going to look different from a real time renderer. You know, lumen and path tracing depending on how you're rendering it out for real-time versus like through MRQ, it's going to render and it's going to have a different look. You know, build into your experimenting in time to look at these different methods. MRQ alone in rendering out shots from Unreal, whether it be like via EXR, DPX, or as, you know, or as ProRes or, or DNxHD, you got to experiment. Because like when you've, you've got a shot delivery coming up, it's like, you know, if you're going to render out EXR, you got to know that you're going to need those cycles to build up your MRQ template the right way, just like you would for, you know, for Adobe or DaVinci or, you know, Avid, Final Cut, Premiere, Pick Your Flavor, is like building to your time of experimenting and playing with these different tools because there's so many resources out there now from Gumroad to the Epic education thing to like events like on Real Fest, which is coming up uh, next month uh, in the States. Like get involved in the community. That's the biggest thing there and build in to just experimenting. And if you're daunted and you, you're coming from production world into the CG world or the 3D world, just take the time to experiment. And then if you're in it now, pick new things. Like if you're in Blender, but you haven't messed with, you're in Blender and using cycles, get over to Unreal and start learning more about Lumen. You know, if you're a texture artist, like come over from one side of that and go jump into things with like substance or marvelous designer or whatever it is, but just pick little bite sized things that are executable. You know, it's like that, that thing that they have in the army of like, you know, the first thing they have people do is make their bed. So that's like one thing down for the day. Yeah. The first thing you do is get up, make your bed. For me, it's get up and have coffee. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned something earlier about creating kind of ways to rig like lighting systems up in Unreal Engine and and, and real-time things. And you mentioned Dead Mouse. I know Dead Mouse. Did he feature in the new Muppets trailer that you've worked on? Is that a scene that involved what you've just mentioned about those kind of virtual production light setups? Not, not from that part. I would, I would say I do know that Joel is a very big user himself on of Unreal Engine C4. Oh, really? Like his, his. You'll see him floating around on Discord channels and things no, like that, and his and his team. I know from from Joel's side, like just following his career, like he's a big nerd too. In the very nicest of ways, he's very technical. His his shows and shows like that, especially like you know in DJ EDM, yeah, you know, the live visual world, that you know the experimentation that goes on there is, is is really big too. The Muppet stuff, the episode that we did that had a a, a big proponent volume aspect to it was actually uh, uh, episode five. Which is, <laughs> which is the Joshua Tree episode where they trip out on expired marshmallows, <laughs> <laughs> which is so funny to that 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 past script supervising in, in in Disney, you know the shots on the volume in Joshua Tree is they're having a otherworldly experience after finding a bag of expired marshmallows, um, and the characters do that. So yeah, the the environment for that one. Uh, building environments, uh, mainly Joshua Tree, which we shot uh, on an LED volume in in LA. Craig Keefe was was our DP, and and then we got to work with the entire Muppets team and puppeteers 
and see just seeing the puppeteers work oh my you know, as, as a fan of growing up with with yeah. the Muppet show was like amazing to to work on that project I think for the virtual production aspects of like a project from like Muppets to like a, a I, I say it's funny that I've worked on a, a project in virtual production in real time with like Muppets and puppets between like Pinocchio and then you know Muppets Mayhem. They use different forms of real time and 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 virtual production uh, for you know the Pinocchio project with with Bob Zemeckis and, and Kevin Bailey, and then the the Muppets one with Craig and and Chris and the team at at um, Henson and the Muppets. You know each project in real time virtual production has a different path to take for like how to execute on the tech and how to execute on the creative, especially around uh, virtual production. And I say, I always bring up Unreal Engine, but it just happens to be the hub for a lot of virtual production. There are other tools, but in the style that I've been using them and we've been using them as, as a, you know, an industry, they've done a really good job of just making the tools really diverse in how they get used. So like Pinocchio we wound up using that more for like translate for image-based lighting real time and, and heavy for driving simulcam using foreground, midground, or, you know, foreground, midground, and, and background uh, layers like augmented reality. So the benefit of using, you know, real time and virtual production and something like that is that the DP, the director, the visual effects suit, the production designer, the art team, you know, from the production side all can see the composited shot there. And it may not be the final shot like we try to do for in-camera visual effects on a traditional volume like everybody knows through uh, Mandalorian and ILM stagecraft team. It's the buzzword in Mandalorian. It's a blanket term. I mean, uh, Ashoka is awesome. Obviously, big shout out to that whole stagecraft team and, and all the artists and technicians on on uh, Ashoka. And Dave, you know, Dave obviously being amazing of writing, like taking all that stuff from... You know his animated series and bringing it into there to like keep the <laughs> the fans of Star Wars and, and Clone Wars. You've got to keep those Star Wars fans happy because they can turn pretty quick. Yeah, but those those it's a blanket term under virtual production because we're using we're using real time tools, we're using AI, we're using machine learning, we're using computer vision. There's a little bit of misconception of you know is virtual production cheap and fast? No. Uh, the, the straight answer is no. It still, it still takes money. And so I think there's a misconception there of oh, it's quicker and faster because there's no green screen and there's no comping as such. But there still is. There still is, of course. And some people might think, oh, you can just go in a volume or an, on an LED wall and that's it. But it's only used on you know, it's not used on every shot. It's only uh, crafted for particular shots or particular scenes. Some people just think, oh, you can just jump in, film it, and you've not got to do any post. But that is definitely not the case. No, LED volumes and working on them from a virtual production real-time side, they're expensive. To put those together, to put the teams together, to get the engineering, it is expensive. That doesn't mean aspects of virtual production cannot be done by lesser budgets and by you know a team of one or a team of five working in their garage. You totally can use green screen, blue screen in virtual production, you know, to do real-time keying. People do it all the time. It's nothing new. Um, it's just that the tools are, are, are catching up. They're getting less expensive. You're able to do that. But by no means is virtual production restricted. I would say LED volumes are still budgetarily restricted, but even that is coming down. In the past two years, 
shooting on an LED volume like a proper one because people just go, well, I have an LED wall. Well, that's not quite a volume. That's an LED wall. LED panels are advancing and you do have it because there is a back end of it. You have LED. You have an LED panel, LED volume. You have processors. You have sync generators. You have clocks. You have decimators. You have all these bits that have to come together to make an LED volume or even an LED wall work properly with your game engine. And that's broadcast tech and live event tech that's coming into the storytelling world. So it's a it's a mix of technologies and a mix of you know executions from software connecting to hardware connecting to processors it's a puzzle and and not only is it like the sync the the headache of getting it all to sync correctly for a production then there's the optimization then there's getting it to kind of perform for what you needed to do on particular things it's let's, it's, talk, uh, let's talk about that word optimization for a minute because it's something okay. heavily heavily overlooked yeah big time anything related to game engines is there needs to be more people educating themselves as artists or themselves as people that are going to use real-time tools and especially for for in-camera visual facts and and led volumes is just because it was made in a game engine does not mean the asset you downloaded from the epic marketplace or turbo squid is ready to shoot on an led volume right away in the same day or in half day optimization is a really big part to getting game ready assets to shoot ready assets being that epic listens so well this is one thing we were just talking to them about how things get tagged in these different marketplaces whether it be epic or you know turbo squid or you know all that is because there is a stage in between downloading something from a particular marketplace and then having it ready to be shot on an LED volume. There is still this part in the middle that you have to conform those assets to be ready and performant. Just because you grab something from Kitbash 3D or big, medium, small, or whatever, nine times out of 10, they may not be purpose-built for playback for an LED volume. It just says game ready a lot of the time, doesn't it? And people think, oh, I can chuck it in, but... yeah. And some things may do better than others, but it may be performant different that, you know, if you're shooting a project as a commercial uh, for a live event, you're at like 30 and 60 frames. If you're shooting things for commercials and feature films, you may be at 24 and 25 frames. Getting an entire large environment with digital actors, be it, you know, we've been doing stuff with volumetrically captured assets in real time onto an LED, you know, onto an LED volume. How I call it is the uh, the scene tax of something like that being able to play back at even 24 frames takes a lot of render power to push those pixels through to a processor to a very large LED wall. So if you have a very large environment, and this is what's good for artists to understand, especially new artists, is the way that you build a scene has a tax. Every light you put in, every camera put in, every shrub and procedurally generated piece of material or content in there will now add the tax to that scene. So being a really good environment artist or being a good lighting TD is understanding the taxes that you're adding because you're working in an environment, unless it's just me or you, you know, and we're building the whole things ourselves. 
we're going to have to understand what our scene tax is and you know understanding what a rec light does versus a point light does that tax a system more does this camera angle change so then we get into the whole conversation of, of baked versus dynamic oh yeah yeah big time you may bake things because you're going to save on scene tax in a certain way and then it, you know how your lod structure is your level of detail structure is um is going to be totally different for you know a path traced pass versus like keeping something fully dynamic in a scene because a director goes you know what i want the ability and this is the benefit of real-time tools i want the ability to change over a scene really quick and you as the artist or you as the soup or you as the cg soup or bad soup or you know whoever it is as a team have to understand the way that you build out these environments build out these characters all has an effect on how it needs to act for the day of the shoot or how it needs to how it needs to um, be implemented for a post render workflow this is what comes back to like the educating part of like understanding like this is all very technical stuff and this is why you lean on your different team members your cg soups your vfx soups your vp soups your vad soups like and your team as a, as a general is understanding like how these different components come together because i've seen it before where it's it's failed miserably you know where you get content from other teams and they said, yeah, you know, we have a VAD and we have, you know, we have this whole team ready to, but you get it, you download it, you know, you download it, you do that pull from Perforce or you're, you're getting, <laughs> you know, you're getting an Aspera download of this, you know, you know, multi, multi gigabyte environment. And then you just try to load it on your machine. And even on a local art machine, it's like, this is never going to work on an LED volume. And then you have to take those steps then optimize and go back and do these different passes so yeah it is different building environments and props and assets and you know digital humans for icv effects or for virtual production versus a typical visual effects comp post-rendered workflow you know it's like if you go in a post workflow and a traditional comp workflow you know you can tweak those pixels to the last, you know, to the last little bit of that RGB or RGBW value and get it to look immaculate. But it's different for real time. Of course, you know, man. You, yeah, yeah. You're using different methods and different tools and different different things. And to circle back around why this is all daunting and like all this, like every project I work on every day I'm out there, it's like trying to learn more because these tools change. There's always yeah, a new drop of Blender, of Unreal, and things change, good or bad. Certain things get broken, new things get implemented, and you're pulling your hair out to be like, wait, this just worked in the last <laughs> rev. Do I now have to go back to this previous build, or do I have to jump to a new build to fix this one problem, but then it breaks all this other stuff? And that could go for cameras as much as it can for software, but it's muscle it's muscle memory, um, and it's, it's also leaning on your friends, your colleagues, and your team as a whole, because I don't know everything. I'm gonna, I'm of gonna course, go man. to, you know, I'm gonna go to, you know, my friends like Kevin and Glenn and 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 other people that I know have been doing this even longer than me, and just go like, hey, let's let's spitball this. Um, there's a problem here. What's the right way to execute this? And that's like why I always say it's like you know, build in that experiment or that R and D time. Just so you don't get caught out there 
<laughs> when you're in production and it's just not working. And you're on set. You don't have the time. <laughs> it happens. That happens to you. Things break all the time on set. Um, there is no... I'd be very skeptical if everything was like just smooth sailing. If it was a smooth sailing day, you kind of think, hmm, something's not right. Something, this is too good the to be true. There's something, yeah, definitely. <laughs> be waiting for the black cat to glitch. You really do, yeah. It's going to, it's too good to be true. Um, I've got a final point I'd like to just touch on, Jim, to, to wrap up the conversation on. It's just a thought to get your input on. How do you see virtual production technology evolving in the coming years? And what opportunities do you think it will bring to the industry? Um, there's already tools that are coming now, obviously, with things like, you know, with the advancements of AI and machine learning and computer vision. That's going to help on the hardware side and the software side. We're seeing tools like, you know, procedural tools now, you know, being at a build out environments with a, with a, you know, a stylish stroke and we're getting, you know, here's a forest. Yeah. And then, oh, that's not quite, let's try again. Another seed, another. Yeah. It's like, Hey, the, the, the swipe of a stylus, you know, on, on your tablet or whatever creates a spline <laughs> path. And then boom, just on that spline path, it's like, we just set a bunch of seeds out there and we have a forest. You know, that is, that is photo real, you know, that I think that's the thing too, is we're starting to see the thing that we've always been chasing both in character and from believability of props and, 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 uh, real world things is, is that uncanny valley, the photo real that's maybe you're on a stylistic project and you're using like a, like a tune shader, you know, so your shading is supposed to be more like in a studio Ghibli, like, you know, Miyazaki it's supposed to look more stylistic than it is photoreal. So you have different project goals to hit. You know, that's really cool. Uh, I think as the stuff advances is, you know, maybe artists start to dive more into the technical part of, of like writing their own shaders or learning how to write a shader because they want to have something that looks like a, a sketch in tune. The photoreal side of it is we go out and, you know, we may capture, do photogrammetry passes and do, you know, full LIDAR scans of sets. And we have to make a digital twin of that. I see the advancements of photogrammetry and digital twins accelerating big time, not only from, you know, companies like Leica with, with you know, with their LIDAR scanners or, I mean, geez, even look at this supercomputer we have here, yeah. an iPhone, even with the new iPhone 15 that just came out is the advancements in camera. You know, you've got RGB capture mixed with depth capture in your pocket. If I had that as like a, you know, VFX soup 10 years ago, that would be like, you could probably get some final renders from oh, an no, iPad yeah. Pro or a phone today. And I think the advancements we see of stuff that we go out and do captures with on our, on our iPhones or even with our, you know, SLR cameras or even going to like reds and, and digital cinema cameras, you'll see an advancement of capture capture to game engine or capture to photo reel is going to be much easier to get a digital twin actually looking like that real world in a one-to-one model. Um, we're starting to see it with things like nerfs and G-splats today. I saw the G-splat, I saw a G-splat post. That was insane. Um, someone on LinkedIn did a little video and I was like- It's amazing. It's really amazing to say, if I have a tiny little drone or I do a walk around with an iPad or an iPhone in that, is that pass going to be one day close enough to be final pixel? I, I do definitely think so. 
it's catching up to be like, hey, G-splats have kind of the next evolution of, of nerfs in that do you do from a single point of view, get all that 3D information? I mean, that was early. I say Lytro was ahead of its time for light fields is like being able to have a light field capture device in your phone. It's it's kind of like Adobe had this early days with uh, its Planoptic camera, which was purely R&D, didn't come out. It was a little sphere ball that had, you know, multiple sensors and multiple, but uh, Lytro was early on for light fields. I think that's the next evolution is, is light field capture where you have a single point of view or novel view, but then your whole world is captured. Can you, my brain goes to, I can have an iPhone, a red camera, or like a Sony, you know, a whatever of the future, a Sony A13, and I'm at one angle, but all of the information, RGB, depth, texture, material, something five miles down the road. I saw this long time ago at SIGGRAPH, uh, like a military thing where the technology could pull the texture information off of a building's brick from five miles away. No. You know, and I saw that I saw that years ago at SIGGRAPH and that was like declassified military stuff that had come into the entertainment world. So if you can imagine a capture device of the future from real world, and our goal as visual facts or real time or virtual production, whatever it is, you, you could be an individual artist that doesn't really know all this tech, but you could capture from a device a tool that captures all the information in, all the lighting, all the pixel values, all the color, all the depth, all of that. Be able to take that and pop that into Unreal Engine. And then all of a sudden, you need to recreate that because you're in a world in the Pacific Northwest where it rains all the time. So you're going to shoot in a studio. You're going to build those sets one-to-one because you've LiDAR scanned those sets or that location. And then you can get on set, work with your TP, your gaffer, your grip, your production designer, all the traditional production teams. But then you'd be able to go and say, hey, we did the site scan. Now I can take that information and all of the rec lights and point lights and everything I have all those values go one-to-one into Unreal Engine or into Blender and you've started up. Like that's where we're going to get to. That's where I'm hopeful that we are is that the way that we capture information will translate over one-to-one into the digital twins. It'll be a little bit before we get it to exactly how my mind sees it today, but I'm hopeful that from the capture side, from the lighting side, from all the traditional stuff we use, We'll be able to get to like digital twins of that where today it's like, you know, getting the proper photometric values from a camera over to Unreal Engine. It's not one-to-one yet, but we'd get there. So if I throw in, you know, a cream source Vortex 8 into Unreal Engine as a model, I'll know that the, the light values that I would get with that actual physical light are going to be represented properly in there. So then when I get to set and I've gone through a previs or a technical session with the DP and with the production designer and all of that, we know that the RGB or the values that we've built in previs and techviz is going to be one-to-one when we got to on set. We're getting there. It's for sure going to happen. You know, even if I have to to push, <laughs> to, you know, and I'm not the only one. I'm not. I'm definitely yeah, not man. the only one. A lot of other people want this stuff too. 
there's going to be such an advancement in the next, you know, five years alone that we're just going to, our minds are going to be blown of like, look at all this cool stuff we get to work with. And that's a great point to, to finish on, you know, looking to the future of, of where things can go in that particular field, as well as a million other things that are going to advance, of course, as well. We're sure to follow you wherever you go and whatever projects you work on. It's easy to follow me. I'm on social media. You know, yeah, any, like, any um, final words to shout out where people can find you and what you do on, on the World Wide Web? Well, I have a company called Space Boy Labs, which is mainly me and a bunch of friends doing really creative, cool things with technology and and and, uh, and creative arts. Um, you know, I'm easily found on, you know, right now, until, if it's still around, Twitter or X uh, and Instagram, um, my username is FilmBot. It's pretty easy. That comes from a, a, skate, a skate background too. And it's, that's a whole nother funny story. But, um, and then just, you know, LinkedIn and, you know, different, different things. And if you're at Unreal Fest, you'll probably see me there too. Jim, thank you so much. That has been an absolute blast. Thanks for having me. It's always fun to, to talk about this stuff, especially how it ties into skateboarding and art and music and all the fun stuff. Thanks, Jim. Really, real pleasure. And, and enjoy yeah, your you. um, AI talk tomorrow. All the best. Cheers, Jim. Have a great day, man. And I'll catch you, you very soon. Sounds good. Thanks. All the best, Jim. Take care, man. See ya. Thanks for listening. Remember to check out our other episodes available or check out the podcast in video form on our YouTube. Again, please drop us a rating and review. See you next time. The VFX Process, getting intimate with your industry. Brought to you by Big Two Studios.